Author's Note of Victory, an Island Tale by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Author's Note On approaching the task of writing this note for victory, the first thing I am conscious of is the actual nearness of the book, its nearness to me personally, to the vanished mood in which it was written, and to the mixed feelings aroused by the critical notices the book obtained when first published almost exactly a year after the beginning of the war. The writing of it was finished in 1914, long before the murder of an Austrian archduke sounded the first note of warning for a world already full of doubts and fears. The contemporaneous, very short author's note, which is preserved in this edition, bears sufficient witness to the feelings with which I consented to the publication of the book. The fact of the book having been published in the United States early in the year made it difficult to delay its appearance in England any longer. It came out in the thirteenth month of the war, and my conscience was troubled by the awful incongruity of throwing this bit of imagined drama into the welter of reality, tragic enough in all conscience, but even more cruel than tragic, and more inspiring than cruel. It seemed awfully presumptuous to think there would be eyes to spare for those pages in a community which, in the crash of the big guns, and in the din of brave words, expressing the truth of an indomitable faith, could not but feel the edge of a sharp knife at its throat. The unchanging man of history is wonderfully adaptable, both by his power of endurance and his capacity for detachment. The fact seems to be that the play of his destiny is too great for his fears, and too mysterious for his understanding. Were the trump of the last judgment to sound suddenly on a working day, the musician at his piano would go on with the performance of Beethoven's sonata, and the cobbler at his stall stick to his last in undisturbed confidence in the virtues of the leather, and with perfect propriety. For what are we to let ourselves be disturbed by an angel's vengeful music, too mighty for our ears and too awful for our terrors? Thus it happens to us to be struck suddenly by the lightning of wrath. The reader will go on reading if the book pleases him, and the critic will go on criticizing, with that faculty of detachment, born perhaps from a sense of infinite littleness, and which is yet the only faculty that seems to assimilate man to the immortal gods. It is only when the catastrophe matches the natural obscurity of our fate that even the best representative of the race is liable to lose his detachment. It is very obvious that, on the arrival of the gentlemanly Mr. Jones, the single-minded Ricardo, and the faithful Pedro, Heist, the man of universal detachment, loses his mental self-possession, that fine attitude before the universally irremediable, which wears the name of Stoicism. It is all a matter of proportion. There should have been a remedy for that sort of thing, and yet there is no remedy. Behind this minute instance of life's hazards, Heist sees the power of blind destiny. Besides, Heist in his fine detachment had lost the habit of asserting himself. I don't mean the courage of self-assertion, either moral or physical, but the mere way of it, the trick of the thing, the readiness of mind, and the turn of the hand that come without reflection, 
and lead the man to excellence in life, in art, in crime, in virtue, and, for the matter of that, even in love. Thinking is the great enemy of perfection. The habit of profound reflection, I am compelled to say, is the most pernicious of all the habits formed by the civilized man. But I wouldn't be suspected even remotely of making fun of Axel Heist. I have always liked him, the flesh-and-blood individual who stands behind the infinitely more familiar figure of the book, I remember as a mysterious Swede right enough. Whether he was a baron, too, I am not so certain. He himself never laid claim to that distinction. His detachment was too great to make any claims, big or small, on one's credulity. I will not say where I met him because I fear to give my readers a wrong impression, since a marked incongruity between a man and his surroundings is often a very misleading circumstance. We became very friendly for a time. I would not like to expose him to unpleasant suspicions, though personally I am sure he would have been indifferent to suspicions, as he was indifferent to all the other disadvantages of life. He was not the whole heist, of course. He is only the physical and moral foundation of my heist, laid on the ground of a short acquaintance. That it was short was certainly not my fault, for he had charmed me by the mere amenity of his detachment, which, in this case, I cannot help thinking he had carried to excess. He went away from his rooms without leaving a trace. I wondered where he had gone to, but now I know. He vanished from my ken only to drift into this adventure that, unavoidable, waited for him in a world which he persisted in looking upon as a malevolent shadow spinning in the sunlight. Often in the course of years an expressed sentiment, the particular sense of a phrase heard casually, would recall him to my mind, so that I have fastened on to him many words heard on other men's lips, and belonging to other men's less perfect, less pathetic moods. The same observation will apply, mutatis mutandis, to Mr. Jones, who is built on a much slenderer connection. Mr. Jones, or whatever his name was, did not drift away from me. He turned his back on me and walked out of the room. It was in a little hotel in the island of St. Thomas in the West Indies in the year 75, where we found him one hot afternoon extended on three chairs, all alone in the loud buzzing of flies to which his immobility and his cadaverous aspect gave a most gruesome significance. Our invasion must have displeased him, because he got off the chairs brusquely and walked out, leaving with me an indelibly weird impression of his thin shanks. One of the men with me said that the fellow was the most desperate gambler he had ever come across. I said, a professional sharper? and got for an answer, he's a terror. But I must say that up to a certain point he will play fair. I wonder what the point was. I never saw him again because I believe he went straight on board a mail-boat which left within the hour for other ports of call in the direction of Aspinall. Mr. Jones's characteristic insolence belongs to another man of a quite different type. I will say nothing as to the origins of his mentality, because I don't intend to make any damaging admissions. It so happened that the very same year Ricardo, the physical Ricardo, 
was a fellow-passenger of mine on board an extremely small and extremely dirty little schooner. During a four days' passage between two places in the Gulf of Mexico, whose names don't matter, for the most part, he lay at the deck aft, as it were, at my feet, and raising himself from time to time on his elbow, would talk about himself and go on talking, not exactly to me or even at me. He would not even look up, but kept his eyes fixed on the deck, but more as if communing in a low voice with his familiar devil. Now and then he would give me a glance and make the hairs of his stiff little moustache stir quaintly. His eyes were green, and every cat I see to this day reminds me of the exact contour of his face. What he was travelling for, or what was his business in life, he never confided to me. Truth to say, the only passenger on board that schooner, who could have talked openly about his activities and purposes, was a very snuffy and conversationally delightful friar, the superior of a convent, attended by a very young lay-brother, of a particularly ferocious countenance. We had with us also, lying prostrate in the dark and unspeakable cuddy of that schooner, an old Spanish gentleman, owner of much luggage, and, as Ricardo assured me, very ill indeed. Ricardo seemed to be either a servant of the confidant, of that aged and distinguished-looking invalid, who early on the passage held a long murmured conversation with the friar, and after that did nothing but groan feebly, smoke cigarettes, and now and then call for Martin in a voice full of pain. Then he, who had become Ricardo in the book, would go below into that beastly and noisome hole, remain there mysteriously, and, coming up on deck again with a face on which nothing could be read, would, as likely as not, resume for my edification the exposition of his moral attitude towards life illustrated by striking particular instances of the most atrocious complexion. Did he mean to frighten me, or seduce me, or astonish me, or arouse my admiration? All he did was to arouse my amused incredulity. As scoundrels go, he was far from being a bore. For the rest, my innocence was so great then that I could not take his philosophy seriously. All the time he kept one ear turned to the cuddy in the manner of a devoted servant. But I had the idea that in some way or other he had imposed the connection on the invalid for some end of his own. The reader, therefore, won't be surprised to hear that one morning— I was told without any particular emotion, by the padrone of the schooner, that the rich man down there was dead. He had died in the night. I don't remember ever being so moved by the desolate end of a complete stranger. I looked down the skylight, and there was the devoted Martin, busy courting cowhide trunks belonging to the deceased, whose white beard and hook nose were the only parts I could make out in the dark depths of a horrible, stuffy bunk. As it fell calm in the course of the afternoon, and continued calm during all that night and the terrible, flaming day, the late rich man had to be thrown overboard at sunset, though as a matter of fact we were in sight of the low, pestilential mangrove-lined coast of our destination. The excellent Father Superior mentioned to me with an air of immense commiseration, The poor man has left a young daughter. Who is to look after her, I don't know. But I saw the devoted Martin taking the trunks ashore with great care just before I landed myself. 
I would perhaps have tracked the ways of that man of immense sincerity for a little while, but I had some of my own very pressing business to attend to, which in the end got mixed up with an earthquake, and so I had no time to give to Ricardo. The reader need not be told that I have not forgotten him, though. My contact with the faithful Pedro was much shorter, and my observation of him was less complete, but incomparably more anxious. It ended in a sudden inspiration to get out of his way. It wasn't a hovel of sticks and mats by the side of a path. As I went in there, only to ask for a bottle of lemonade, I have not to this day the slightest idea what in my appearance or actions could have roused his terrible ire. It became manifest to me less than two minutes after I had set eyes on him for the first time, and though immensely surprised, of course, I didn't stop to think it out. I took the nearest shortcut, through the wall. This bestial apparition, and a certain enormous buck-nigger encountered in Haiti, only a couple of months afterwards, have fixed my conception of blind, furious, unreasoning rage, as manifested in the human animal. To the end of my days. Of the nigger I used to dream for years afterwards. Of Pedro, never. The impression was less vivid. I got away from him too quickly. It seems to me but natural that those three buried in a corner of my memory should suddenly get out into the light of the world. So natural that I offer no excuse for their existence. They were there. They had to come out. And this is a sufficient excuse for a writer of tales, who had taken to his trade without preparation, or premeditation, and without any moral intention, but that which pervades the whole scheme of this world of senses. Since this note is mostly concerned with personal contacts and the origins of the persons in the tale, I am bound also to speak of Lena, because if I were to leave her out, it would look like a slight and nothing would be further from my thoughts that putting a slight on Lena, if of all the personages involved in the mystery of Sam Buren, I have lived longest with Heist, or with him I call Heist, it was at her, whom I call Lena, that I have looked the longest and with the most sustained attention. This attention originated in idleness, for which I have a natural talent. One evening I wandered into a café in a town not of the tropics, but of the south of France. It was filled with tobacco smoke, the hum of voices, the rattling of dominoes, and the sounds of strident music. The orchestra was rather smaller than the one that performed at Schoenberg's hotel, had the air more of a family party than of an enlisted band, and, I must confess, seemed rather more respectable than the Zangiacomo musical enterprise. It was less pretentious also, more homely and familiar, so to speak, insomuch that in the intervals when all the performers left the platform, one of them went amongst the marble tables, collecting offerings of sous and francs, in a battered tin receptacle, recalling the shape of a sauce-boat. It was a girl. Her detachment from her task seems to me now to have equaled or even surpassed high aloofness from all the mental degradations to which a man's intelligence is exposed in its way through life. Silent and wide-eyed, she went from table to table with the air of a sleepwalker, 
and with no other sound but the slight rattle of the coins to attract attention. It was long after the sea chapter of my life had been closed, but it is difficult to discard completely the characteristics of half of a lifetime, and it was in something of the jack-ashore spirit that I dropped a five-franc piece into the sauce-boat, whereupon the sleepwalker turned her head to gaze at me and said, Merci, monsieur, in a tone in which there was no gratitude but only surprise. I must have been idle, indeed, to take the trouble to remark on such slight evidence that the voice was very charming, and when the performers resumed their seats, I shifted my position slightly, in order not to have that particular performer hidden from me by the little man with the beard who conducted, and who might, for all I know, have been her father, but whose real mission in life was to be a model for the Zangiacomo of victory. Having got a clear line of sight, I naturally, being idle, continued to look at the girl through all the second part of the program. The shape of her dark head inclined over the violin was fascinating, and, while resting between the pieces of that interminable program, she was, in her white dress and with her brown hands, reposing in her lap, the very image of dreamy innocence. The mature, bad-tempered woman at the piano might have been her mother, though there was not the slightest resemblance between them. All I am certain of, in their personal relation to each other, is that cruel pinch on the upper part of the arm. That I am sure I have seen. There could be no mistake. I was in too idle a mood to imagine such a gratuitous barbarity. It may have been playfulness, yet the girl jumped up as if she had been stung by a wasp. It may have been playfulness. Yet I saw plainly poor, dreamy innocence rub gently the affected place as she filed off with the other performers down the middle aisle between the marble tables and the uproar of voices, the rattling of dominoes, through a blue atmosphere of tobacco smoke. I believe that those people left the town next day. Or perhaps they had only migrated to the other big café on the other side of the Place de la Comédie. It is very possible. I did not go across to find out. It was my perfect idleness that had invested the girl with a peculiar charm, and I did not want to destroy it by any superfluous exertion. The receptivity of my indolence made the impression so permanent that when the moment came for her meeting with Heist, I felt that she would be heroically equal to every demand of the risky and uncertain future. I was so convinced of it that I let her go with Heist, I won't say without a pang, but certainly without misgivings. And in view of her triumphant end, what more could I have done for her rehabilitation and her happiness? 1920, J.C. End, Author's Note